This is the Journal of American History podcast for March 2009. Hello, this is Ed Linenthal, editor of the Journal of American History, welcoming you to our second podcast. In this program, we speak with Professor Thomas Zeiler about his article, The Diplomatic History Bandwagon, A State of the Field. Thomas Zeiler is a professor in the Department of History at the University of Colorado Boulder and editor of the journal Diplomatic History. Tom, welcome. Thank you, Ed. It's good to be here. Tom, I thought we would start with uh, uh, something very interesting that you wrote in The State of the Field. You say, a product of intense interdisciplinary crossings, diplomatic history may have reached a point of cross-fertilization that one just might not be able to know it when one sees it. A focus on the state does distinguish the field, but surprising while it is easy to find descriptions of methodology, taxonomies, and pleas for new directions, it is more difficult to settle on a coherent definition of U.S diplomatic history. And then you go on to say, however, that it's very important to provide one. Could you say a little bit about uh, the difficulty of settling on a coherent definition and why you think it's important to keep trying? I think the, the difficulty and in finding a definition arises from the fact that this is a field that has vastly transformed itself over the last, oh, I'd say, 30-odd years. And that's one of the themes of the essay and showing that the, um, the state of this field has not so much been in flux, but has responded to criticisms that it was uh, sort of pigeonholed as a, a research w- with research agendas that uh, just focused on the state or on state department memoranda uh, and other bureaucratic materials and archives. So I think the importance of defining the field uh, lies with the interest among diplomatic historians in showing that the field has broadened and broadening and reaching out and also being affected by so many other uh, fields in the profession, but certainly in trends of social and cultural history or the internationalization uh, that has been going on in the historical profession. In showing that, in being affected by and affecting others, diplomatic history has, in a way, uh, lost some of its more specific meaning. When I said, you know, you used to be, you knew it when you saw it 30, 40 years ago, that was very true. And this was a field that was perhaps a a leader uh, in the profession. It has since been subsumed in many senses to cultural and social history. uh, and the internationalization trends, it has uh, really didn't even uh, have many representatives on the La Pietra report. Well, let me ask you about uh, three areas that you wrote about in your State of the Field essay where you say that reform has enlivened uh, the field. Traditional realism's engagement with ideology, number one. Number two, the embrace of international history. And then number three, the study of culture and identity. Can you say a little about each of those and the kind of uh, dynamic work that you see going on? 
the first one, the the study of ideology, has really been uh, sort of a a remarkable occurrence. Um, that that has been undertaken. The the, the focus on on discourses and on ideas, on images, uh, on visions, has been undertaken by uh, many historians, and always has been, uh, although more and more sort of what I'd call the big guns, the, the Gaddises, the, the, the Mel Lefflers and others, uh, have engaged, Michael Hunt, have engaged uh, ideology. So uh, ideology, I think, is very important, and that plugs into, that, that opens up a whole host a whole range of possibilities when you're looking at ideology, um, not only from economic ideology and development policy, it exposes belief systems um, it, it, and principles. And again, ideology that I think is very important to the study. Uh, I, I call it mentalities that you know express the patriotism, show, show how Americans uh, uh, approach the world uh, in a variety of ways. Tom, say something about now this uh, second area where you think reform has enlivened the field, the embrace of international uh, history, and perhaps as you're talking about that, the the problems and promise of that embrace. The promise is obviously directly linking to the trends in the, in, among American historians themselves. Not all American historians, but many, of course, as you know, have internationalized. You can see it in the pages of your journal, and you can see it in, in mine. That has been a big effort of, of trying to cast the United States within that global framework. And a lot of that is to show the influence of the United States in the world, but also to show the United States as perhaps not exceptional in, in the world, uh, show it as part of one of uh, many actors, states and, and institutions and, and transnationals that uh, participate in creating global history. And I think we should also remember that um, the world, of course, affects the United States uh, in many ways, and that seems so self-evident, but I think, in a way, diplomatic historians were tended, like, like others, to look at the United States as here's the, here's this great power that affects the rest of the world, and in and in and of course that is true, but there are many ways it does affect it, and there are many actors that affect it, and the world affects the United States too. So I think this trend toward international internationalization of the historical profession has also affected the study of American foreign relations. And I tried to also make a case that while we could do more and should do more in internationalizing. One of the issues is, of course, learning those darn foreign languages. Yes. Uh, not yes. you know learning something beyond English um, to really truly give a, a full global picture. I tried to make an argument also that uh, that diplomatic historians have been doing a lot of this. That that, that though we have transformed the field, uh, and though it is different for for, for decades. We were engaged in globalization of research, uh, multinational and multi-archival research. Uh, so I was trying to make an argument also that, that we've been there and done that, and that's why I sort of called us a clearinghouse or a, a lying at the intersection of what's been happening in these larger trends in the historical profession, uh, uh, namely internationalization. This third area where you think there is a lot of exciting work going on is in what you call the study of, of culture, 
uh, an identity. Could you say a little more uh, about that? Yes, um, and that that is an interest, an agenda that actually, in in a sense, reverses. Uh, the focus on internationalization. It is a way to try to understand what America is, wh- who Americans are. And, and in that sense, uh, there is not as much of a requirement on um, uh, understanding foreign languages and things like that. Now, that said, uh, there is also a trend in, in understanding America by understanding how others look at us, too others outside the United States. So the internationalization trend is important. The identity, though, I mean by that is that diplomatic historians have engaged the longer-term trend on social and cultural history that has existed uh, since the late 60s and early 70s that changed the profession. To the extent that it is difficult to sometimes to distinguish who is a diplomatic historian who is in American studies, for example. Uh, there has been such a cross-fertilization uh, among uh, all of these fields, diplomatic history, American studies, others, uh, anthropology, however you look at it, uh, women's studies, ethnic studies, broadly defined. It, you know, there have been such crossovers and, and, and people showing up at con- diplomatic history conference who are not diplomatic historians, diplomatic historians going to the American Studies Association meeting. It's been wonderful. It's been wonderful, but it has also muddied the waters over who is a diplomatic historian and who is not. I think there has been a much more interest, much more work done on the issues of race and gender. Yes, yes. And you you write as well about the importance of non-state and public actors. Uh, Can you say something about that and uh, perhaps give us some examples of promising trends in in this focus? There has been um, a movement to, to approaching uh, and, and discussing and analyzing American foreign relations, not just in terms of the state, but how perhaps the state wields some of the other agents, some of the other actors that that comprise America. Uh, and, and those, of course, are non-state actors, the uh, regular people, tra- transnational forces of immigrants and, and sports figures, um, you know, uh, tourists, that you know go into the running and the process of American foreign policy. Non-governmental organizations has been another place where there has been fertile ground. World organizations and and uh, philanthropic organizations, you know, church groups, synagogues, uh, other religious groups, uh, and organizations. Uh, those those have all sort of gone into the pot to make up to comprise. Uh, the making of and carrying out of American foreign relations. What, and, and that has been, again, where this transformation has taken place uh, when you're talking about identity and even internationalization is that diplomatic historians weren't either acknowledging they were doing some of this in the past way back or weren't doing enough of it to convince the rest of the profession that we were important enough uh, to be listened to. I think you're getting more and more of the diplomatic historians, again, who are crossing over, who are looking at these other elements, especially 
those non-state actors, those transnational figures. And at home, of course, we're talking about identity, those uh, organizations or people involved, uh, you know, ethnic groups or uh, the, the NAACP uh, or, or women's organizations uh, that traditionally had been neglected in the field. I think you're getting much more light shed on those two. So, so you would have, for example, uh, Nick Colather's uh, article in American Historical Review on foreign policy and the calorie. Uh, oh, certainly. And uh, Michael Jordan, focus of study not only for sports historians, but Michael Jordan as a kind of embodiment of all kinds of uh, global forces, marketing forces particularly. Certainly. In both of those cases, you have examples of what histor- diplomatic historians would not necessarily in the past have looked at as important sources of power, but of course they are. And the overarching argument of this essay is the state is important and that's what we do best, but we have modified how we look at the state and what goes into making up that state. In those two cases, in uh, Nick Culliver's view of the calorie. Um, you're looking at issues such as food crises, development of famine, uh, the, you know, Herbert Hoover and, and relief to, to Europe after World War I, how the approach, the issues of food and development feed right into the development of American foreign policy. Uh, and so when he talks about the calories, it was a way, it was a gauge, it was statistic, a statistic that could be used by scientists that then foreign policymakers used to translate into policy is that we we needed to help these countries and we could gauge who we needed to help, how much we needed to help them, where were the crises by looking at how th- their food intake and their caloric intake and, and their use of calories. So it was a fascinating article. And in the Michael Jordan case, of course, too, that uh, these sports figures uh, in, in a field that we that that you might traditionally look at as well it's fun it's entertainment it's not doesn't really reflect issues of power in fact not true at all that that michael jordan in some senses was a carrier at least of american culture and if you believe that then american culture has a power behind it and that links directly to the projection of the united states in the world we both share an interest in uh, uh, sports, the interplay of ideology and local, national, and global sports. Uh, your book, Ambassadors in Pinstripes, the Spalding World Baseball Tour and the Birth of the American Empire, is a wonderful example of your putting into practice some of what you've uh, talked about. Uh, share with, with listeners how you first thought of a baseball tour as an appropriate focus for a diplomatic historian or historian of foreign relations, uh, and then what what you found as you began to work on this. Okay. I, I made a, a purposeful effort to cast that baseball tour in the context of U.S. foreign relations and globalization, and I had done some earlier work on globalization, so and teach a course on American history through baseball and, and, and like baseball a bit. Uh, and, and so those, those all came together. But this was in, uh, absolutely intentional. There have been other studies. A wonderful study came out the same year my book came out on this World Baseball Tour from a cultural angle. 
so, uh, though it hadn't been written about in, in uh, monograph form. The more I looked at uh, this topic, the more I saw this, this world tour of 1888-1889 as occupying a very interesting period in the United States, uh, an era in, that was sort of pre-empire, in the sense that we, we were 10 years away or so from the Spanish-American War, and uh, though within a few years we would debate whether we should uh, occupy Hawaii and uh, annex Hawaii in the early 1890s, uh, American foreign policy was sort of in the developmental stage, and we didn't have a robust uh, foreign service at that time. The military wasn't all that strong. So, so taking those elements together, and also realizing that this was an understudied period uh, in American diplomatic history. There's much more done, of course, on post-1898, uh, much more done in the Cold War. I, I think that, that, this, this book, that I approach this book as a way to sort of inject a, a larger framework, place this tour in a larger framework that related to the evolution in America's power in America's foreign policy. And what I did try to do in that book is tie the the tour and these tourists, um, uh, transnationals uh, uh, going around the world. Uh, they happen to be sports figures, but of course, as as, as many know and many work have been done, there had been American entertainers going around the world uh, in the years well before this. But taking these tourists and putting them embedding them in an analysis of globalization, of what globalization really meant. This is a, an era up to World War One of what uh, others, and I've termed uh, an era of Anglo-American globalization, that actually, beyond the, uh, the degree and magnitude we have today, actually the world was probably more intimately tied uh, together back then, before 1914, than it is today. So I, I thought that was an important aspect of world history, globalization to, to discuss. And so I took these drivers of American style globalization of, of the business model of Albert Spaulding, the business owner who owned the Chicago white stockings and originated the tour or of transportation and communications. Uh, the world had become more linked as these tourists went around the world. Um, they exemplify that of, in a way, of the still, still always existent nationalism uh, and, patri- and patriotism, and, and but that nationalism now cast as a American national cast in the terms of that uh, we're we're part of a grander Amer- uh, uh, Anglo-British uh, Empire, an imperial project, it's cousins with these. These grander imperialists, uh, uh, cousins of ours in, in Britain, uh, that race and, and, and gender also were elements of globalization and thus elements of American foreign policy. And so uh, the, the fact that, for example, they, they brought a, what we're call, was called a mascot, um, a little African-American uh, guy, a teenager, late early 20s, we don't know his uh, name, but virtually abused him the whole way around, very racist, and, and of course met people of color too, uh, nations in nations of color um, too, and had these tourists did, and had, so the, the, they had reflections on that. Casting baseball as a gender, in gender terms, as a, as indicating the masculinity of Americans, of showing that we were rough and tumble. It was a manly game as opposed to, say, cricket and other sports. I tried to do all of that 
Uh, obviously, it's a fun book to write, and, and baseball is a fun topic, but I think also baseball, like much sports history, can reflect broader and deeper trends in American society, and in this case, American diplomacy. Do you think that in some ways uh, sports not only reflect these kinds of trends, but can be part of the construction of them? Uh, I, I'm thinking about Franklin Ford's book, How Soccer Explains the World. It seems to me that the way he talks about soccer in different countries is as a really important part of identity, of ideology, uh, of consensus, of conflict, that is more than just a passive reflection of of trends. Does that make sense? I think it does. I I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, And I think it also addresses an issue in, in our field, in American history, that a lot of times Sports is not taken as seriously as other identifiers or other other uh, frameworks of American identity, but I think it certainly does. I think, uh, uh, in large part, Americans, like other people in the world, build their identities around sports. So I think you're absolutely right. I always uh, I I begin a, a class by saying that this might be odd that we're studying sports history, but we're going to study it in a very serious way. Uh, because there are few things, I think, in the world that that are that create universal linkages among people around the world. I think food does. I think people respond in different ways to food, but we all relate to that in various cultures. I think music does, uh, maybe shopping, uh, but I think certainly sports at a sort of a gut level. You talk sports, whether you're in Argentina, the United States, Korea, uh, Senegal people relate to it. And I think it's part of their notions of who they are uh, and what their countries are. It'd be fascinating, wouldn't it, to to do comparative studies of what it means to be a fan and uh, different ways that fandom is ex- expressed. And there's been so much done about Ali, Muhammad Ali, for mm-hmm. example, another, another global uh, figure. So I could see from uh, a foreign relations diplomatic history perspective, that in addition to some of the straight history that's been done on, for example, the Harlem Globetrotters, one could look at their forays around the world and look at how they were received locally in a whole variety of places. And I imagine it would be a, a fascinating study to do. Yes, I think you're right. And I'll let you in on a secret. I'm sort of contracting on a book on something similar. And go, but also going in the other direction, as it were, and showing how an Ali or Olympics or uh, the uh, Baseball World Tour reflect on American diplomacy itself, too. H- how it's a projection of American power in a way. What are the links, in other words, I'm asking, between sports and diplomacy? and sports and international politics. But you're absolutely right at that social or cultural level. I think you're, you've got a lot of research possibilities there um, because, it, again, it is so, such an important sports is so important. Tom Zeiler, I want to thank you so much for joining us for this podcast, and we look forward to your upcoming State of the Field, the Diplomatic History Bandwagon in the Journal of American History. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks for having me on and listening to me, Ed. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication in the Journal of Record in American History. 
Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Please support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. Subscribe online at www.oah.org and you'll receive a printed copy of the journal four times a year. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Join us in May for our next program. Once again, if you have comments or suggestions, please email us at jahcast at indiana.edu.